Um, we sing these songs, we pray the prayers, we hear the Word of God. I'm, I wonder if you know what you are doing. I wonder in my own heart if I know what I'm doing. Do you guys know what you're doing every Sunday? The word is worship. We come on Sundays to worship our God. Now what is worship? In, our, in my study this week I came across several good quotes by some godly pastors. I thought it was a good place to start our study this morning. Some few quotes from godly men. First is an anonymous writer. He writes, Worship is the humble response of regenerate men to the self-disclosure of the Most High God. It is based upon the work of God. It is achieved through the activity of God. It is directed to God. It is expressed by the lips in praise and by life in service. A man named William Temple wrote a masterful definition of worship and he said this, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness. It is the nourishment of our minds with His truth. It is the purifying of imagination by His beauty. It is the opening of the heart to His love. It is the surrender of our wills to His purpose. And all of this is gathered up in adoration. Worship is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore it is the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. The final quote is by Stephen Charnock in his sermon titled Spiritual Worship. He defines worship in this way. Worship is an act of the understanding applying itself to the knowledge of the excellency of God and actual thoughts of His majesty. It is also an act of the will, whereby the soul adores and reverences His majesty. Embracing God's goodness, one enters into an intimate communion with God, pitching all His affections upon Him." End quote. What great truths! about the activity that we're all engaged in right this moment. We're all doing this, of worshiping God. What a great and undeserved privilege all of us have in worshiping our Lord. If anything is clear from the Bible, it is this, that worship is our highest calling, the most noble occupation, the greatest calling you and I have ever received in life is to worship God. The Westminster Catechism tells us that man's chief aim, his highest end, is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. Whatever work you're involved in, whatever occupation you are called to, worship is the highest occupation. And today's passage in John chapter 4, 20 through 24, teaches us some great truths about our greatest work. Teaches us some great truths about our greatest work, and that is worship. Now if you have your Bibles open, look with me to today's passage, verses 20 through 24. And even through a cursory reading of this passage, you will note that worship dominates this passage. Just by the sheer fact of the number of times the word worship appears in these five verses. You will know 
that the word worship appears 10 times just in these five verses. Look with me in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped. Place where he must worship. Verse 21. Time is coming when you will worship. 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Verse 23. True worshipers will worship. Kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is seeking. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The word worship alone is found ten times in this passage. So it is obvious to us that the clear theme of this passage is worship. The idea of worship dominates this passage, but not just this passage. We must be aware that the concept of worship dominates all of the Bible. From the first book, Genesis, all the way to the last book, Revelation. If one theme can be gleaned from the study of the scriptures, it is one of worship. The first sin was the failure to what? Worship God, right? And what is the last thing we find in the book of Revelation? We see the community of believers gathered around the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and doing one thing, occupying one work. And what is that? That's worship of the Lord. From that, we, we, we discover that worship is not an addendum to the Christian life. It is not a cursory activity. It is not a secondary effort. By our study in Scripture, we discover that worship is the Christian life. The heart of the Christian life is one of worship, of adoration of our Lord. Now, before we move on into this passage, I want to just help you understand that according to the Bible, worship has two aspects, two sides of a coin. It is broad and narrow. Worship is both broad and narrow. What do I mean by this? Worship is broad in the sense that for believers, it encompasses all of one's life. When we talk about worship in the Christian sense, it is not segmented or, or, uh, or dichotomized or put in a quadrant of Sunday mornings. When we talk about worship for the Christian, it is broad and encompasses all of our lives. From God's perspective, from the biblical perspective, God's view, there exists no separation between the sacred and secular. All of it is worship. So your job might be with the pen or the plow. Your work might be teaching science or teaching scripture. But in God's perspective, all of it is worship. All of it is a living sacrifice to God. Romans 12.1. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. It's broad. Worship is everything. Worship is your life. Paul's prayer in Colossians 1.10 is that, that they might please God in every way. In everything they do, they might do it by faith and please God in whatever they do in life. So worship is in a definite, definite way. It is all-encompassing. But at the same time, it is also narrow. Worship is narrow. Worship is also rightly seen as our activity on Sunday mornings. As we gather together as a group of believers, as a community of, of saints who trust in Christ, as we gather on the Lord's day and we labor, I don't know if you guys came and your mindset is, man, I had a rough week. 
I had to work hard this week. I actually had to work at, at, at the office. Or I had, a, I had a final this week. I can't wait to come to church and just turn off my mind and relax. If you come with that mindset, that's wrong. Every single one of us, have, we've come to labor this morning. We've come to work. We've come to serve. And what is our activity? It is uh, worship. It is praise. It is prayer. It is confession. It is repentance of sin. We've come to do the hard work of, for me, preaching the word, for you to listen to the word and to apply it to your life. We've all come to fellowship. We've come to break bread in sweet fellowship and communion. So rightly viewed worship is also narrow in the sense of what we do as a corporate body of believers. Acts 2.42, the believers did that in the book of Acts. Hebrews 10.25, let us not neglect to meet together. That meeting of special worship to God, that is also worship. So when we talk about worship, it is not either or, but it's both and. It is broad and narrow. Both are biblical responsibilities of every disciple of Jesus Christ. Every disciple must do both, broad and narrow. But today's passage, I believe, deals with the narrow. Deals with the narrow side of worship. Why? Because of the question by the Samaritan woman in verse 20. What is her question? She asks, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Her question revolves around temple worship. So that leads us to believe that she's not talking about whole life encompassing worship, but the narrow worship that was done in these two temples. Now a quick historical study. Samaritans we learned several weeks ago were half-breeds. They were Jews that were left over in the exile, that intermarried with Canaanites. Not only were they mixed breed in terms of ethnicity, but they were mixed breeds in terms of religion. They had adopted, they, they have syncretized the pagan religions of the Canaanites with Judaism. Therefore, they were half-breeds and they were the, the, the Jewish people. A bitter point of dispute between these two groups was which was the acceptable place for worship of Yahweh. The Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was the only place where you can worship God and be accepted by Him. Right. And that's what she says. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped. She's saying, this has been the practice of our people for generations. And the authority here is not the scriptures. The authority is tradition. It's history. It's culture. It's society. This is the way it has been for years. As long as we can remember, we've always worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And that's what we believe, and we disagree with the Jewish people. You believe it's Jerusalem. The Jewish people believe that the temple in Jerusalem was the only acceptable place for the worship of God. That one must worship in Jerusalem for the worship to be acceptable to the Lord. You know, that mindset is still present today in Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem today and you will find this kind of mindset. In Jerusalem right now, the temple is no longer there. In fact, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third most holiest site in Islam, stands where the temple once stood. The Jewish people are prohibited from entering the mosque. And so the closest they can come to the temple area is the western wall, the outer western wall of the previous temple. 
I'm sure you've seen pictures of, of Orthodox Jews praying before a wall. And that's the western wall of the Temple Mount, the outer western wall. Orthodox Jews believe that because this western wall is the closest to the temple, that when one prays on that wall, the prayers offered at that place is most effectual. It is most expedient. And a common practice, we, we, saw that we saw them do this. We didn't do this, but we saw them do this. A common practice is to write down your prayers in a small paper and, and crumple it up and put it on the crevices of the wall. Because if you do that, God is so close, it'll go directly to him just by the nearness of that wall to the temple area. In fact, there is today a fax service where for a fee, you can fax your prayers to Jerusalem and they'll crumple it up for you and put it on the wall to have your prayers answered. Well, at the time of Christ, there were these two competing temples vying for the top prize. Our Lord's answer to her is direct. Our Lord's answer to her is direct and shocking. Verse 24, our Lord declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The only imperative you will find is in verse 24 when Christ says, believe me. Believe what I'm saying. Now note the authority. In verse 19, she acknowledged you're a prophet because you know about my five adulterous relationships. Remember that a few weeks ago? No one could have known that, particularly a stranger, you must be a prophet. But Christ says by saying, believe me, he says, I am so much more than a prophet. My, my authority exceeds that of any prophet. Every prophet that came said, thus saith the Lord. Our Lord says, don't believe in your culture, your tradition, your view of scripture. Believe me. He is speaking with complete authority to this woman. And he tells her, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, if you understand this passage, you understand that it is a startling statement. It is a shocking statement of our Lord. His answer is that both the worship of the Samaritans and the worship of the Jews are unacceptable to God. Neither place is right. God rejects them both. Neither worship satisfy. Yes, he knows. They pray hours on end. Yes, God knows. The Lord knows they're fasting. Some of them have given up family, friends, their, their, their li livelihood. They've committed themselves to a monkish existence, praying to God, sacrificing animals, involved in ritual after ritual, reading the Bible day and night. Jesus says, no. Neither worship is acceptable to God. You know, people are sometimes surprised to find that God rejects certain kinds of worship. Right? People are surprised to find what God rejects worship? Isn't that ungracious to reject worship, reject the gift? Don't we? It's not our practice, right, guys? When someone gives you a gift, wouldn't it be offensive to the giver to reject that gift? That's not worthy of me? You know, this past summer, my wife and I, we went to the coils and stayed with them for two weeks after our trip through Israel. Now, Sir and I knew we would end up with the coils, and we knew they had two sons, so we, we knew we should bring a gift. We're going to be staying with them for a week and a half. Well, we, went, we tried to shop for the gift, but 
were running late, you know, I was graduating that week, if you remember. So at the last minute, I stopped by my parents' store. And if you don't know my parents' store, they own a 99 cents and up store. The operative word is up. So everything from hair gel all the way to TV, you name it, we got it. Well, I went there, I was uh, last minute, I picked up this small electronic piano keyboard. Like 20, 25 keys, a piano, you turn it on and you can play music. Well, when we arrived at the coils, with brimming pride, Serena and I gave this toy to the kids. And they loved playing music with this keyboard. I mean, right away, they're both playing the keyboard, they're making music, Barbara was uh, playing songs for them, and I was like, great, we picked a great toy to give the kids. Well, next day, we, we woke up, one of the keys stopped working. Day after that, three more keys stopped working. <laughs> By the end of the week, only four keys of the whole keyboard was working. I think by our last day, it was down to one key. I was so embarrassed. I was like secretly praying, Lord, make it work. <laughs> I hope it starts working. I try to fix it. What do I know? I put new batteries in, all to no avail. But you know what, guys? The coils were so gracious. They didn't return the gift to us and say, you gave our children a cheap dime store gift? I would have said, no, a 99 cent store gift, not a dime store. <laughs> Now take this back to America, we don't need this. No, they weren't like that at all. They were very gracious, right? And we think that's how we all ought to be when we receive gifts, be gracious. Well, we think that way of God. Some people think, hey, God should be pleased that we give him any kind of attention, right? Shouldn't he be happy that at least I came out Sunday? An hour of my time? In my busy schedule, he should appreciate me coming out to give him worship, and how dare he? The gall of God to reject my worship, my attention, my service to him. What more does God want? Well, nothing could be further from the truth. It is clear from the very beginning of the scriptures that God rejects certain acts of worship. God completely rejects it. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but Cain's worship, God rejected. God repeatedly throughout the Bible rejects, uh, judges those who fail to worship him properly. When the people of Israel worshiped the golden calf, and they made this golden calf, and they called it Yahweh. They, they weren't committing idolatry in their mindset. They said, that is Yahweh. We're worshiping God, and God rejected them and judged them. Leviticus 10, remember the priesthood of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the high priest? They were entrained to be priests all their lives. Their first service to God. They come to the temple, and they worship, and they offer some strange fire. God instantly killed them both. Paul talks about this Roman, in Romans 1.25. Paul wrote that God was justified in condemning man because he worshipped in error. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Therefore God condemned man. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear. God will not accept deviant worship. And that's what our Lord was saying to the Samaritan woman. God rejects both the worship of the Jews and the Samaritans. Why? 
Well, he rejected, he rejects the worship of the Jews, verse 22, because you Samaritans worship what you do not know. God rejects the worship of the Samaritans because their worship was not based on truth. It was based on ignorance. We know from, from uh, archaeologists and historians, the Samaritans uh, believed in the first five books of the Old Testament and rejected the rest. Rejected the rest. From Joshua all the way to Malachi, they rejected it as the word of God. Their religion was characterized by enthusiastic worship, but it was not based on the truth. Now Jews, on the other hand, they were orthodox. They, they believed in the Old Testament, but they lacked the spirit. They lacked the spirit. And the S there, your Bible should say a small S, because that's the right, right rendering. It's not Holy Spirit, but it's spirit, the spirit of man. The Jewish people worshipped God, but it was all external. It was not in the inner person. Their hearts weren't in it. When the Pharisees prayed, they gave arms, they fasted. They did it for all men to know. They did it in public, to be seen by men, not in secret, to be seen by God. That is why our Lord called them hypocrites, phonies, whitewashed tombs. Men who are full of dead men's bones because outwardly they're whitewashed. They look clean, but inside it's full of, full of um, um, deadness, full of dead men's bones. Nothing alive. The worship is dead. No spirit. Christ says in Mark 7, 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, they're far away. That's why God rejects both. Mount Gerizim was enthusiasm, but heretical. Jerusalem was orthodox, but it was lifeless. Though they were outwardly seeking God, in truth, they were seeking themselves. And then in verse 23, our Lord tells us, in fact, you're all seeking yourselves. No man seeks after God. The truth is, the seeker is God himself. It is not men seeking God. The initiator of worship is not man, but it's God, the Father himself. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verse 24, the Father our Lord's most favorite title for God. Every time our Lord addresses God, it's always Father. Seventy times in the Gospels, always addresses Him Father, except for once on the cross. On Calvary, He says, my God, my God, because they were separated. God forsook Him on the cross. Other than that, He always called Him the Father, my Father. He says, the Father, verse 24, is seeking true worshipers. Man, isn't that awesome? You know, we come in the mornings and we're like, God, where are you? God, I want to worship you. I want to praise your name. Where are you? And we think God is far away. Well, the Bible tells us God is seeking us. God is searching the whole world. Seeking out worshipers who will worship him in truth and in the spirit. I mean, isn't that awesome? Isn't that an amazing statement? I mean, shouldn't that pump us up in our worship? Shouldn't that fire us up to be focused, to be alert? And to give all of ourselves in the worship of our Lord, knowing that He is seeking us. And our Lord is, and, our, and the Father is seeking, and He finds. 
It's not like he's hopeless. Where are you? Are you hiding? I, I can't find these sinners. No. Our Lord is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's, he's in control. What the Father, who the Father seeks, he finds. Luke 19.10, where the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? So if Christ wants to seek after you, he will find you. And when he finds you, what will he do with you? He will transform you. He will save you. He will redeem you. And that's what God has done. He has sought after our lost people and made them true worshipers. God has redeemed people. God has saved people. Why? So that they might worship him. That they might glorify his name. Do you guys see that? That redemption is the means, not the goal. Right? The purpose of our redemption is not we escape hell. The purpose of our redemption is not, wow, my sins are forgiven. I get to live a good life. The purpose of our redemption is for God's worship. It's for God's glory. It's for the praise of His glorious grace, Ephesians says. In a true sense, worship, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history. It is the goal of the whole Christian story. Again, worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. It is the entire Christian life. And worship is the reason for our salvation. We are saved. Why are we saved? We are saved to worship God. The Father and Son have sought to redeem us so that we may become the true worshipers. Worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking true worshipers and he has found them in his church. In verses 23 and 24, our Lord tells us three characteristics of the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. Three, three marks of true worshipers. Maybe a simple way to put it. The first mark of a true worshiper is found in verse 23. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will what? Interactive time. True worshipers will worship the Father. First characteristic of a true worshiper. He or she worships the Father. God the Father is the, accept, is the object of acceptable worship. If we want our worship to be accepted by God, He must be the center. He must be the focus. He must be the object of our worship. To put it slightly, in a slightly different form, we can say all acceptable worship is God-centered. Centered upon God. It's rightly focused on the Father. True worship centers around God, on His perfection, on His attributes. We had dinner with my, my dad two nights ago, and he asked me, James, what caused you to change in you know, doctrine and theology? What was it that made you take a right turn and understand the truth? And my response was, you know what? It was understanding God. When I studied, when, when I was taught the attributes of God, when I discovered from the, I was nine years into the Christian ministry, and for the first time I discovered who God was in the scriptures, that changed my life. Because my life, my worship, my broad life became God-centered and not man-centered. Likewise, in Sunday worship, what is to be center of our hearts, center of our attention? It is to be God. Luke 4a, Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. 
1 Timothy 1.17, to the King, eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. True worship is God-centered. It's a reminder to all of us in our self-centered lives, lives that we lead, that it's not about you. It's not about me. Reminds you that it's your life is not about you. You're not the hero of your own story. This, this church is not about me. Or the elders or the people here reminds us that we exist for God and His glory alone. First mark is God-centered. Second mark is in verse 24. God is spirit and His worshipers must, Greek word day, must worship in spirit and in truth. Second mark is worship in spirit. Small s, it means the inner man. It tells us a true worshiper is worshiping on the inside. That worship is internal. Worship has very little to do with externals. It is not about being in the right place, right time, right words, right demeanor, right clothes, right diet, right music, and the right mood. It has very little to do with these things. It tells us that worship is spiritual. It's an internal activity. It occurs on the inside, in our hearts. That is why David, after his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, verse 10, what did he ask? What did he cry out for? He went to God and he said, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. He says in verse 16, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. God, I'm king. If you, wanted, if you want sacrifice, sacrifice animals, I'll bring them all. But you do not delight in such things, in external activity. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh Lord, you will not despise. David knew that God's primary concern was not the externals, but the internal heart of a man or woman before God. Stephen Charnock in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, wrote, quote, Without the heart, there is no worship. It is a stage play. It is an act. A part being played on the externals. The Greek word is hypocrite. If it's just externals without the heart. We may truly say we worship God, though we lack perfection. But we cannot say we worship God if we lack sincerity, end quote. That's so true. We may worship God imperfectly, but we cannot worship God insincerely. Well, this morning, are you worshiping God? Are you worshiping God in the Spirit right now? How can we worship God in the Spirit, in Spirit? Maybe it's just some some things from scripture. Number one, it's impossible to worship God in spirit apart from being a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you have nothing to offer to God. You have nothing to give to God. You have nothing to give to God that pleases Him or satisfies Him in any way. A non-Christian is presumptuous if he or she views their worship as pleasing to God. They're presuming on their own righteousness before a holy God. He is offending God just by His presence. Worship in the Spirit is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. Stephen Tarnock again says this, quote, Only the regenerate can worship God. 
for only they have hearts that truly go out to him in adoration and self-subjection. All worship issuing from a dead nature is but a dead service, end quote. So first, you must be a Christian to worship God in spirit. Secondly, it is impossible apart from the confession of sin. Impossible apart from the confession of sin. On the Lord's day, when we come, be, come together to worship our God, the first thing I do is confess my sins. Because I know I cannot be worshiping God if I'm hiding sin in my, in my heart. Because God is spirit. He knows everything. If I'm duplicitous, if I'm hypocritical, if I'm toying with sin in my heart, my worship is offensive to God. So it is impossible to worship in spirit apart from the confession of sin. We must be repentant. We must confess every known sin. Now it's not to sit there and delve through the whole week and Monday what did I do, Tuesday what did I do, Wednesday afternoon, evening, you know, Thursday morning. No, it's a known sin, a sin that you know about. We need to confess to worship God. Thirdly, it is impossible to worship God with, an, with a divided heart. It's impossible to worship in spirit with a divided heart. Come on, be honest with me, guys. Have you ever sat through a worship service? You're, you're in the worship service. You're like 30 minutes in. And you realize your mind is a million miles away. You haven't thought about God. You haven't heard the... What did he say? What was the sermon on? What songs did we sing? Your heart was... You came in divided. And you were just out there. Not focused on the Lord, but focused on these other things. Maybe you came to worship angry, saddened, or excited about something else. And that distracts you throughout the service. Without a united heart, it is impossible to worship God. Well, the first mark of a true worshiper is they worship the Lord. Second mark is they worship in spirit. Third mark is they worship in truth. Verse 24, worship in truth. Acceptable worship is based upon truth. It is intelligent, so very important in our culture. It is not mindless. It is not babbling of many words, as Christ told us in Matthew chapter 6. Worship does not bypass the mind. If you are turning off your mind and just going crazy with emotions, you're not worshiping God. You know what I've noticed, guys, in the, in the church today, in the narrow aspect of worship, emotionalism has invaded the church. And you know, how do we see this? These songs that we sing, they're becoming less and less doctrinal and more and more sensual, more and more emotional. Have you guys uh, noticed some of these songs? I, I call them God is my boyfriend songs. <laughs> We've all sang these songs, haven't we? Let me just read to you some of these lyrics. Take me away with you. Take me away with you. That I may know you. That I may be with you. I want to know you even deeper. I want my heart to beat with yours. So I will be your passion seeker and I will open up my doors. Another song. Lord, I love to feel your presence resting tenderly. An intoxicating fragrance. I breathe you into me. 
You're beautiful, altogether lovely, you're wonderful. Forever I will be in love with you. To look into your eyes of fire, to gaze upon your face, is everything my heart desires as I come into this place. Another song, the title is Tenderly. Right? Tenderly, oh so tenderly, Lord, you hold me in your arms. And quietly, oh so quietly, Lord, you whisper to my heart. When I speak your name, you're just a breath away. And the number one, my God is my boyfriend song. I think you guys know the song, I need you to hold me. Right? I was preparing this, and this morning I'm singing the song. What am I singing? I'm singing the song. <laughs> this is in my head. I'm concerned about this. Well, the lyrics go, I need you to hold me like my daddy never could. I need you to show me how resting in your arms can be so good. I need you to walk with me. Hand in hand, we'll walk and play. And I need you to talk to me. Tell me again, you will stay. Hand in hand, we'll run and play? What kind of worship song is that? I'm going to play with God? These aren't Christian songs. These aren't biblical songs. These are romantic songs, sensual, emotional songs. But songs that are sung again and again in churches throughout America. Because they focused on worshiping in spirit. But we've neglected worshiping God in truth. Many well-meaning believers see doctrine, theology, and truth as hindrances to worship. They think that doctrine will hinder them in a passionate prayer life, in singing to the Lord and experiencing God. I say no. I say a loud no. A mind saturated with the truth of God is the most fertile ground for genuine worship. It rises from right doctrine. True worship rises from a right understanding of truth. It does not bypass the mind. It involves, it, it, it starts in the mind. That is why worship is a skill. It takes concentration. It takes practice. It takes knowledge and understanding. You deepen in your understanding of the Word of God and you will see a significant uh, depth in your worship of God. They have a symbiotic relationship. They're not divorced from each other. They come together. Word and worship. We must worship in truth. That is why I firmly believe that preaching of the Word of God is central in the worship service. And, and all that we do on Sunday, we praise, we, pr we praise, we pray, we practice ordinances, Lord's Supper, baptism, we practice church discipline, and we have preaching of the Word. In all these activities, God meets His people, most of all in preaching. Preaching of the Word is the most solemn and exalted activity and is the supreme test of the church's worship of God. Guys, for you and I, the hearing of sermons is to be the most momentous event of our lives. The highlight of our week, what is it? The highlight of our week is when we come to church on Sunday and the Word of God is proclaimed faithfully. That is why we live. That is pure worship. The Puritans pleaded with the congregation of, his, of their people to appreciate this fact and to listen to the Word of God proclaimed with awe, attention, and expectancy. They're hearing the Word of God. 
Richard Baxter told his congregation, come not to hear with a careless heart as if you were to hear a matter that little concerns you, but come with a sense of the unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequences of the holy word which you are about to hear. Make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. You have to work to do as well as the preacher and should all the time be as busy as he. You must hide and sow the word of God in your heart and digest it for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore be all the while at work and utterly hate a lazy heart as you would hate a lazy minister. Chew the cud and call up all when you come home in secret and by meditation preach it over to yourselves several times. If it was coldly delivered to you, preach it again more earnestly to your own hearts." End quote. The Word of God proclaimed during service is the foundation of worship and is the apex of worship, the height of true worship. Christ told the Samaritan woman, God rejects your worship and God also rejects the worship of the Jewish people. But the Father is seeking true worshipers. Worshipers who will worship the Father, who will worship the Father in spirit, and who will worship the Father in truth. A few final thoughts. To close our time, I want to apply these truths to you guys and really just take it down to like where we live and just kind of apply it specifically to all of us. How can we, I included, worship God in spirit every Sunday? We need to come and confess our sins. We need to check our pride at the door. I know that's how we live in the world. We live in the real world, right? When we go to work, deal with problems, and we have to stand and fight for things. Therefore, that becomes part of our personality sometimes. But when we come to worship, we check that at the door. We must come in, come in as lost sinners, saved solely by the grace of God, saved by the, the flaming hells of fires of hell, and confess our sin. We must come in with a humble heart and pleading before God, asking the Holy Spirit to grant us an undivided heart. That is how we can worship our God in spirit. Secondly, worshiping in truth. Just some practical applications for you. When you hear the word of God, take notes. I mean, take notes. It's the height of the worship service. It's God being, God's word being proclaimed. When you take notes, you're thinking twice. Right? You've got it in your mind and you got down with your hand. You have nothing to refer to later on so you can preach to yourself again and again throughout the week. Simple application, take notes. Secondly, prepare your heart. Remind yourself that you are listening to God's word. I know it's James up there or Rex or Bob or some guest speaker, but I know because he is exposing the word of God, it is God speaking. It's a solemn activity. It's a holy activity. Remind yourself of that throughout the sermon. Thirdly, be an active listener. Be an active listener. Don't sit there and say, teach me. Right. James, you're responsible to teach me. No, be active. Own your learning. Be responsible for your own understanding of the Word of God. Take ownership. I need to know this. Right. Think along. Ask questions. <clears throat> Write down references. Look up references. Own your learning. Fourthly, 
Don't be a distractor, right? Don't intentionally distract anyone around you, right? Focus on the Word of God. Fifthly, I think this is the most important. Talk to at least one person about the sermon during the week. Talk to at least one person about the sermon during the week. During the break time afterwards, interact with the Word of God with others. How did God bless you today? What application are you going home with? What truth convicted your heart? You know, husbands, after the sermon, on your way home, maybe on the drive, talk to your wives. Shepherd their hearts by asking them, wow, what blessed you? What applications have you made? What, what truth stirred your heart? How can I keep you accountable? How can I pray for you? Why? Right? Well, the same thing to your husbands. You know, moms, ask your children about what they learned. Right? Ask them, what you learn? They will have questions. They must have questions. Answer their questions. Explain the Word of God. Right? Explain and teach again and again these precious truths. And as certain and I do this, after sermons, I turn to what you learn. What, what stirred your heart? What is your application? I share with her mind. And that stays with me. Because I've shared it with someone to keep me accountable. And finally, follow through on your applications. Right? Worship is narrow, but if all it is is narrow, you're not worshiping God, right? If worship is, is, is reduced to what happens on Sunday mornings and it's not, it does not affect your broad life, then you're not worshiping God. Follow through on your applications. Be doers of the word during the week. And then one final thought. Four more applications on preparing yourself for worship on Sundays. Knowing that it's the highlight of our weeks. One final thought. We need to understand that acceptable worship does not happen spontaneously. If you want to be a true worshiper, the kind of worshiper that brings pleasure to God, it requires preparation. Preparation is essential. We watch March Madness, right? These coaches during the game do very little coaching. If they're coaching during the game, they, they lost. All coaching is done during the preseason, during practices, during the season, during the tournament time. It's the implementation of what they practice. Implementation of the preparation. If you want to prepare then, it's too late. Likewise, you know, you come right now and you want to prepare your hearts for worship right now, a little too late. Maybe prepare your hearts for next week. Preparation is essential. So number one, worship begins, have this mentality, worship begins Saturday night. Worship begins Saturday night. It doesn't begin Sunday mornings. For non-Christians, what is our highlight? They live for the weekend. They live for Saturday night where they can just stay up and have a great old time. For Christians, our highlight is Sunday mornings. Therefore, sleep early. Right? And prepare your hearts. You know we're going through John. Read, read John. Meditate on the passage that will be preached next day. Right? If you stay up, you watch TV, you watch movies, you come to church, your eyes are all puffed up. Right? You barely got three few hours of sleep. Your mind is dull. You're not thinking. You're falling asleep. Why? Because you didn't prepare Saturday night. Secondly, I encourage you guys to come early. Come early and take time to pray, to confess your sin, to meditate on truth, 
take time to surgically remove all those concerns and anxieties of your heart so that you might be focused on God and His truth. Thirdly, come with the mindset to give to God, not to receive anything. That as I'm up here preaching, I'm working to give to God a sermon that, that's faithful to His Word. You have the same amount of work on your part to listen to the Word, proclaim, so that it might please the Lord. I come to give to the Lord worship and offerings pleasing to God. And then finally, God is Spirit. Worship is before God and not before man. It's so easy for us to get caught up with being men-pleasers, right? To, be, to do things to be seen by men. Determine in your heart, I'm going to worship God in secret because He is spirit and I'm going to worship Him and Him alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, who are we that you would call us to worship you? We are the worst of all sinners, guilty of every transgression in the Bible. We are the hypocrite of all hypocrites. And yet, you've shown us amazing grace. Grace that washes away all our sins. And where before you, we are righteous in your sight. And you've sought, sought, sought us out, and you've rescued us, and you've saved us to be worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What an awesome privilege you have given to us, God. Lord, open our, our eyes of our heart to see the holy and solemn activity we are involved in every Sunday morning. We pray that our worship, that our worship will glorify you, that it will bring pleasure to you, Lord, that you accept our sacrifices of praise, preaching, prayer, and fellowship. And it will be satisfactory to be acceptable in your sight. Lord, we thank you for the truths of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he will one day return and we will surround him. We will see him as he is, knowing that we'll surround him and worship him. Just awes us. Lord, we pray as John prayed, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.